We'll stand with me as we rise to read our sermon passage this morning and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. I hope you have a Bible with you today, and if you need one, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and this morning's text is on page 886. If you weren't with us last week, we began a series through John's Gospel that I trust will take us something like 12 months to get through Uh, this wonderful account of our Lord Jesus' life and ministry. And we looked at the first 18 verses last week, and we want to continue on this morning in verses 19 through 34 in this first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So let me uh, read that text for us, and then we'll continue on today. So listen as the Lord does speak to you uh, through His perfect Word. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do ask that you would make your word sweet to our taste today, sweeter than honey to our mouths. Uh, Don't take your truth away from us. We know our hope is found in your word. Lord, make our eyes long for your salvation, for the fulfillment of your righteous promise that you have revealed in your Son, Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb who is worthy of all of our praise, glory, honor, strength, and might, the very Lamb in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Every spring, I I lead a preaching lab at the seminary which is nothing more than what you would think it would be for seminary students to test out their gifts in preaching, 
to tease out their experience in declaring God's word. And the normal spring rhythm is rather simple. They have to preach three sermons. The first sermon they can preach from a full manuscript. The second sermon they can preach from a one-page outline. The third sermon they have to preach without notes. And so we're in the midst of the no notes sermon at this point in the semester, and it's usually two things that happen during the no notes sermons. First of which is they tend to be the best sermons that the students deliver. And secondly, it tends to be the sermons that generate a lot of things that give interesting feedback because after the sermon is done, we just go around the room and we give encouragements, we give constructive feedback in what we trust is an edifying manner. And so one of the students this past Monday was preaching from... Uh, Matthew's gospel, and uh, I frankly enjoyed the sermon uh, quite a bit. I think uh, this brother is going to have, should the Lord continue to sanctify his skill and spirit, I think he's going to have a very fruitful ministry in preaching the word of the Lord. And as we got to the feedback time, there was this consistent element that was given to the student, and it's just quite a consistent element that's so often given to young preachers. Uh, the central element was little more than just get to the point. Because a lot of times there, begin, there can be so much in the introduction that's compelling and in some ways that keeps on going. That before you know it, you're running out of time to deal with the main point. And his main point was really good. And his introductory material was really good. But we said, well, just get to the chase faster. And I tell you that because it's certainly a point of homiletical feedback you could never give to the Apostle John. Because what you get to, not just in John the Apostle, and we see in this morning with John the Baptist, it is straight to the point. Because what we saw last week in the first 18 verses of John 1, this majestic prologue, John unveiled the, these many central themes uh, that belonged to his message soon to come. And if you just glance back to verse 7, notice what he said about John, the prophet who would come, that he would be a witness about the light that all might believe. And so what we get to in this first instance of the narrative of John's gospel is nothing more than the central point of the entire gospel displayed for all of us. This is who Jesus is, and you must believe in him. And it's quite different if you know your gospels well than how the other gospels begin. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy of Jesus that stretches into the birth story of Jesus. Luke's gospel begins with these angelic encounters between Zechariah and Mary that stretches into the birth story of Jesus. Mark is in such a hurry that he just deals with these central events in Jesus' life with only two or three verses racing through these early months in Jesus' ministry. John doesn't even mention Jesus was born in the way Matthew and Luke do. He just gets straight to who Jesus is. And I hope you have something of that quality even in your own heart that uh, you know what it means in ordinary life to race to Jesus no matter the circumstance or situation, uh, no matter the encounter or the emotion. You know what it means to, to drive the heart towards the truth of the Lord in that moment. It reminds me of this, this old English preacher who would love to speak to other preachers in centuries past about his, his tactic in preaching. And because he was in England, he, he basically said, all of you know that in every town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there, there is a road from there to get to London. And so what he said is, whenever I take a text in the Bible, I know there's a road from there to get to Jesus. 
And I just want to get on that track and get you there. And certainly that's what I want to do along the way this morning is get you on the track to the truth of Jesus Christ. And the central part of our text, if you look down at it again, is nothing more than John's declaration in verse 29 about the Lamb of God who has come. So the simple theme that we want to look at this morning is look to the Lamb. That's all you want to see because that's all really John wants you to see. John the Apostle and John the Baptist. Look at the Lamb. The text has two distinct halves. The first half is about the messenger. The second half is about the message. And kids, you might have noticed as I was reading the first part of our text how it's just full of all these questions, isn't it? And so what I want to do is basically divide our text into two simple questions. That is really the heart of this passage as it unfolds the gospel answer of Jesus is the Lamb. So I want you to show, first of all, I want to ask and answer, first of all, who is John? Ask and answer. Secondly, who is Jesus? Because that's certainly how this passage begins, as we ask, who is John? Because that's what this delegation of interrogation asks, don't they? Look again, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, John's gospel is different in another way from the other gospels that he doesn't color in the story of John the Baptist at all. He just says, here comes John to bear witness about Jesus. Here comes John to give testimony about Jesus. Now, the other gospels would help us understand why Jerusalem was in genuine pandemonium over this man named John. He came from the wilderness, which was the place God normally met with prophets. He came looking like a prophet. He was wearing a coat of camel hair fastened with a leather belt. He came eating like a prophet, locusts and wild honey. He came sounding like a prophet. Uh, the central stump speech of, of his sermon was always, Repent, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is at hand. And you might know the story of Israel by this point when John shows up. For hundreds of years, they had heard nothing from God's prophets. They're beginning to wonder, is God ever going to speak again to his people through a prophet? And so, here comes what? John, from the place where prophets typically came from. Sounding like a prophet. Looking like a prophet. Eating like a prophet. And so they say, finally, a prophet has come. But who are you, John? And you'll see his answer begins, verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You might notice the first part of 20, even in our English language, is rather clunky. It's this kind of threefold emphasis on John emphatically saying, I'm not the Messiah. Now, students, you might notice the delegation didn't ask, are you the Messiah? But he knows that for ordinary Jew at the time, that was the most earnest thing they wanted that was the person for whom they were most earnestly looking, was the Messiah who would come and bring this redemption for which they so desired. And John White's to set right from the outset the reality and the foundational truth. I'm not him. And so they proceed in their own minds, these questioners, to the next logical number of men he could be. You see, verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, kids... 
You can ask and maybe even answer in your own minds for a second, did Elijah ever die? And you should shake your head and say, no, Elijah never died. Even Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 even said Elijah was going to return. And so by this point in Jewish culture, they were looking for Elijah's return. They thought that maybe he would uh, bring these miracles. Maybe he would uh, set kind of the religious disputes in order. Certainly he would prepare the way in, in some way for the coming uh, Messiah. Uh, but John says, Elijah, I am not. And then they move down the list of who he could be. And so they ask next, notice the end of verse 21, are you the prophet? And students, it's important that you grasp there what, what, what they are saying, because they're not saying, are you a prophet, but the prophet, which is a singular figure in an Old Testament revelation, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses spoke to the nation of Israel saying there would be someone who would come after me, a prophet who comes after me that speaks God's word to God's people. So they say, John, okay, you're not the Christ, you're not the Messiah. Are you then these two ordinary men that we've associated with the Messiah's coming? Are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you this prophet? He says, no. Perhaps you can then understand something of their frustration, even exasperation, in verse 22 when they say, well, who are you? Well, we know they've been sent from the Pharisees. Certainly, it's a hostile delegation, as we want to understand their tone of questioning. They say, we need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? Stop saying no, John. Just tell us who you are. That's why he says, notice verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. There's a rich Old Testament background to so many parts of our passage here in Isaiah. Chapter 40 verse 3. The text from which John is quoting and applying to himself. It's important you, you recognize that in, in that original context, it, it's saying, make straight the way of Yahweh. Therefore, it's, it's clear in a not-so-subtle way that John is declaring that the Christ who is soon going to be revealed is nothing other than Yahweh come in human flesh. But maybe students and children, a simple way you want to think about this voice crying out in the wilderness in its original context there in Isaiah, it's something like a construction worker on the highway. Because uh, what, what the forerunner was meant to do is in order that the king could come in simply and safely, they were to raise up that which was low. They were to bring down that which was high. They were to get rid of anything that would stand in the way of the king coming to his people, the, the Lord coming to his people. And John says, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, get everything out of the way. Because the Lord is coming. And I, I hope you know something actually about that heart in your own life and ministry. That, that, that you're eager to remove these tangential, preferential things that so often can prevent people from coming to the truth of Jesus. Uh, apostles go on to say, don't they, in the New Testament, that the gospel itself is the obstacle. It's the offense. It's the rock of stumbling. But, but wise servants and leaders and church members know we get everything else out of the way. 
in order that they might come to that place of confrontation with Jesus. John's saying, that's what I'm doing. I'm just the voice crying out in the wilderness. And you'll notice that it really doesn't satisfy the interrogator's interests. You see, they say in verse 25, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? It's got to know something about baptism as it kind of arose in what we would call proselyte baptism in the intertestamental period to understand exactly what they're asking of John here. Because by the time John arrives, this ritual known as proselyte baptism was ordinarily applied to Gentiles. It was the symbolic washing that they had to undergo and they would wash themselves in order to be received into the covenant community. Um, And John is coming, interestingly and certainly with some degree of startling reality, He's saying it's not the Gentiles that need to be baptized, if you know the other Gospels well. He's saying it's you Jews that need to be baptized. And he's not just calling them to go baptize themselves in preparation for the coming kingdom. John's there in the River Jordan baptizing them. And you're supposed to have some understood authority if you are going to baptize somebody. So what they're asking John there is, is what authority do you have to do anything that you are doing? Well, look what he says in his answer, verse 26 and 27. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So who is John? He's just a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And that voice the very next day, begins to preach the gospel about who Jesus is. It was about um, this time last year that I took our four older boys to this sporting event. And it was, it was quite an interesting thing as we were there over the course of, of those hours because invariably the kids would kind of shout out or poke me in the side and say, Dad, look, there he is. This, this athlete that they had seen on the TV, this athlete they had rooted for, this athlete that they had so come to know as something almost as a mythical person in their life. Dad, look, there's so-and-so. I, I trust you can imagine in a much more amplified way the astonishment and amazement that would have belonged to John the Baptist there at the River Jordan on the very next day when he says, notice verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The entire gospel of Christ is wrapped up in this one simple verse. Uh, John's gospel, more than the rest of the New Testament combined, actually, uses the word behold. There's the gospel even in one simple word. Of course, doesn't come John, this voice crying out in the wilderness, say, be better. It doesn't say behave. Uh, Children, he doesn't say, be good. What does he say? Behold, look, the Lamb of God has has come. And I've always wanted to know, and maybe you would resonate with this curiosity that I have, what it sounded like when when John said, behold. I'm sure there at the River Jordan, he had to shout it out for people to hear it. But what was the, the tone of the shout by way of absolute astonishment 
Because that's the way it seems like it goes in this text. Because multiple times he says, I didn't know who he was. And as there as Jesus comes into the water to be baptized and the spirit rests on him, would he have not shouted with this kind of heart-searching emotion? Behold, the lamb is here. And you have to know something about lambs in the life of Israel to know why it would have been altogether climactic and crescendo-like to hear, behold, the lamb of God is here. Perhaps you can think back to the first book in the Bible in Genesis where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only beloved son Isaac. And just before his, his hand with a dagger plunges into his child, a substitute ram is found. Lambs throughout the Old Testament are these principal and primary symbols of substitutionary sacrifice. That's why in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, when God sends his final plague upon Pharaoh, his house, and his nation, what's that plague? But the angel of death going to come and kill the firstborn in every household unless you kill a lamb, smear its blood on the doorposts of your home, and the angel passes over. And then in commemoration of that feast for every year, lambs are slain. If you know the rest of Old Testament Israel's history, it's, it's no stress to say millions and millions of lambs were sacrificed over those many centuries to atone for sin. That's what it would have been for an ordinary Israelite. Every lamb after every lamb given to the Lord, r- reminding them that there was a need for a perfect lamb to come at last who would bring full and final forgiveness. And what does John say? Look, Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, that he takes away the sin of the world doesn't mean he takes away everyone's sin. But the good news is this, he can take away anyone's sin. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter where you have been, he can take away anyone's sin. Who is Jesus? Well, he's going to tell us three things in this second part of our text. He's going to tell us that he's the Lamb of God. The Baptist is also going to say that he is the King. If you look down to verse 32 and 33, he bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Old Testament allusions abound here, of course, as well. You might know there in the first chapter of the Bible, it's the Spirit hovering over the waters at the first creation. And in a a very similar way, it's the Spirit hovering over here at the Jordan River, at these waters of of new creation. Uh, Kids, you might know even the story of Noah. After the flood has fallen, And he's waiting for dry land to appear again. What does he send out but a dove? And when that dove doesn't come back, it's a sign that God's recreation of the world has actually taken place. So the spirit in the form of a dove resting upon Jesus, it signals not just, though, that there's recreation that's coming in Jesus Christ. It signals even his kingly work because throughout the Old Testament, what you would find is that the Spirit often anoints kings. The Spirit was was said to to fall upon kings. But so often in 
the life of God's people. That, that king was disobedient. That king was idolatrous. That king was rebellious. So the spirit left. And here the spirit remains on Jesus. Anoints him for the ministry that is coming. Signaling to us that the king has arrived. And we know from the other gospels, don't, don't we, that when the dove-like spirit descended upon Jesus, the heavens were rent open and the father spoke. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So he is the lamb, he is the king, and you'll notice he's also the son, verse 34. John says, I have seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. That was what he was at pains in this majestic prologue of the first 18 verses to declare to us. That Jesus is the co-equal, he's the co-eternal with God, that as the Son of God, only Jesus can reveal the Father to sinners like you and me. So who then is Jesus? Well, he's the Lamb who redeems. He's the King who rules. He's the Son who reveals. Have you looked to him? Are you looking to him? Our oldest son's namesake is a 19th century missionary to China named Hudson Taylor. There was a time in Taylor's ministry when he found himself in Melbourne, Australia. And he was there doing his thing as missionaries so often just kind of share their reports and, and raise support in certain ways, at least raise awareness in Hudson Taylor's life. And so he was preaching at this large church in Melbourne on this Sunday morning as, as these things so often go. Uh, the pastor of that church was introducing Hudson Taylor to the congregation and his introduction was long, it was eloquent, it was full of all of the things that God had done through Hudson Taylor. And he ended that introduction by saying, well, I want you to greet our most illustrious guest. And so Taylor walks up to the pulpit and he began his sermon as Hudson Taylor was wont to do in such settings after hearing such things. He said, dear friends, I'm just a little servant of a most illustrious master. And I think John the Baptist would have said, yes. That's exactly who you are. That's exactly who we all are. So I want to show you a few final things, just two, as we try to drive this text home to our hearts. Uh, I first want you to see how the text calls us to grow in the humility of God's servant. Grow in the humility of God's servant. Uh, I trust it strikes you in all of John's answers to the delegation's interrogation. He's more or less saying in every single point, I'm not the point. Don't worry about me. Someone else is coming. I'm just the messenger. I'm not the message. You know, students, you might even think, he says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. No one really pays attention to the shape and the form of a voice. They just listen to the content, don't they, of the voice. But there's a stupendous example even of his humility if you go back to verse 27. Look at what he says at the end once again. This one who comes after me, he says, is one of whom the strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now it's a, a first century reality that's so easily lost on our 21st century context. 
But what you need to know is that at that time, disciples were expected to perform all manner of service to their masters except one thing, untying their sandals. That was deemed to be so lowly that only the lowest of servants touched the sandals. And John says, so exalted is the one coming after me, I can't even touch his shoelaces. That's how great he is and that's how little I am. And this is one of whom Jesus himself will say, no one has been born among women that is greater than John. And he says, I dare not touch the feet of this one. Don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to him. And so if you know anything about John the Baptist's ministry, I think you can summarize his life, you can summarize his message, you can summarize his heart as nothing more than three words. Not me, him. Isn't that what he so often is saying, living, doing, even expressing? Don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to him. And maybe you know how three, those, those three simple words can actually change every situation in your life if you understand the actual truth of them in the midst of suffering. Where is strength and comfort found? Not me. Him. In the midst of need, where is wisdom and direction offered? Not me. Him. In the midst of temptation, when you need a way out, where is it going to be found? Not me. Him. There's humility, isn't there, in God's servant? And notice how the text also, in our second way, here at the end, calls us to come to certainty. Calls us to come to certainty about God's Son. Let's look back again to verse 26. John's using this contrast. Uh, if you think it's a big deal that, that I baptize with water, what does he say? But among you stands one you do not know. It's surely there in that moment, the day before Jesus comes down to the River Jordan, that Jesus wasn't standing there. Uh, I think what the Baptist named John is saying, he's here in terms of he has come. 30 years old at this time. The king at long last has arrived. The Messiah has come and you don't know him. And if you know anything about this gospel, is that not displayed almost every chapter? After chapter, the Savior is right next to you, and, and you're not noticing. The Savior is even speaking to you, and you're not listening. It's certainly possible, I would even say quite likely, that some of you are in here today, and there is one among you that you don't know. He speaks to you today. He is near to you today, but you don't know him. And so what do you deserve but his wrath and judgment? You deserve not a baptism of the Spirit, but a baptism of fire unto your eternal penalty. But the Lamb of God has come. The Lamb that takes away sin that you have committed. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and are looking to him, grow in the humility that he requires of all of his servants. 
You might be in here today and wouldn't say you've come to him. John is here that you would come to certainty about God's son. That you would look to the lamb like he called those people to do at the River Jordan so many centuries ago. Behold, the lamb is here. Look to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the life and the light that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ, the great Lamb of God, who takes away the world's sin. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.